Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Kate Fagan on All the Colors Came Out. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or by category. For instance, select the memoirs and biographies or humor category for episode number 121 with Joe Coy on Mixed Plate. Hey, everybody. This is Joe Coy, author of Mixed Plate. Check that out. And you guys are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Ellen. I love you, Trey. Hello, readers. Kate Fagan is an Emmy Award-winning journalist and the number one New York Times bestselling author of What Made Maddie Run. Her new book is another exceptional piece of work. It's titled All the Colors Came Out, A Father, a Daughter, and a Lifetime of Lessons. Kate, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So what was your goal with this book? That's a good question. Right off the bat, <laughs> I, 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 I think I had a number of goals, some of them intrinsic, some of them external. One was, I think, to commune with my dad. But I also felt that the experience I had with him, especially those last years with his disease, led me to believe that I that I had something to write to say that about the experience of, of caring, helping care for him that was a little different than the things I had read about that stage of life and that experience. And I and I, you know, not that it didn't exist and that I was saying something that had never been said, but that I had that I had didn't have anything to read that had really prepared me for the experience. And I wanted to write something that reflected uh, how those months and that last year with my dad had felt to me. And we'll certainly get to those last couple of years, but in laying the groundwork, we need to learn a little bit more about what your dad was like when you were younger. So what was your father like as a dad when you were a kid? Yeah, he um, was one of those dads who his favorite thing was to spend time with his kids. And there are certainly tons of other things I can say about him, many good, some bad. But I think the overall, the overarching memory I have of my childhood was was a, a dad who was look, who always looked forward to spending time with us, prioritized spending time with us, and, and loved sharing his passions with me and with my sister. Just whatever he loved, musicians he loved, or teams he loved, or things he loved doing, he thought that they were amplified by doing them with us. And that was something as a kid, you don't necessarily know is uh, distinct or unique. Not that I was the only kid who, who a, a parent spent time with, but I think you don't realize that that's even something to be grateful for. You just assume that that's what life is. And then as you get older, you realize, wow, not every kid had that or, or, or had both parents or had parents. And so as you get older, you start to realize how incredibly lucky you were that you had someone like I had my dad who just, who didn't just love me, which is a gift to begin with, but then also seemed to really like me as well. And I forget if this was the case with your sister, Ryan, also, but you and your dad really developed that bond through basketball. He's somebody who was a star player in high school and college, played overseas for a number of years, and even after his professional career ended and he moved the family back to the States, he continued to play basketball regularly and included you in that process as well. 
And throughout this book, Cage, you sprinkle in lessons that you learned from your dad. And I feel like, if I'm remembering correctly, all of them relate to basketball. And the first lesson is never let anyone win. (laughs) Do you remember the first time you beat him? And how did it allow that lesson to fully sink in? Yeah. Yeah, that all of those lessons definitely have their foundation in basketball, although I try to I try to take each one and just expand it to be relevant outside of the game. Um, that was kind of the goal was that they could be applicable in everyday life. But the first one is never let anyone win. And you'd be surprised how many parents I know now in 2021 who are shocked when I play with their children at something and I don't let their children win. (laughs) (laughs) Like so many times, I mean, I don't try to destroy young kids at games, but if I'm capable of winning in a gentle way, I ensure that I am the winner uh, of whatever game we're playing, which is not necessarily um, smiled upon by, by all parents these days. Kate, real quick, I laugh because I have a six and four year old at home and we beat them at stuff because they have to learn what it's like to lose and they have to be, learn how to be good losers as well. So I'm glad that even though you're not necessarily <laughs> the parent that you're doing that to some of these kids. Yeah. I mean, I can say that I, the reason I included it as life lesson number one is because there's no small amount of value that I've taken from that first lesson because I do remember the first time I beat my dad because it took me a very long time to beat him at basketball, that is. And so that's solidified in my mind the day that I beat him. And so there's there's value placed on success and achievement in in those moments because I was fairly certain that it wasn't handed to me, that it wasn't fake. And I, and I I do think that there that I learned a lot from the fact that my dad never let me win in anything that I was there was a level of confidence that existed that I could fail at something and I could bounce back and that if I was good at something and I and I could win or succeed in whatever I knew it was authentic and I think that that created a lot of confidence and self-esteem um, in addition to, you know, learning the value and the behavior of losing and being able to ba- bounce back. So I think there was so much wrapped up in that for me. So it was definitely it was there was a strategic reason why it was life lesson number one. How did 1992's March Madness help educate <laughs> you in ways that school could not? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So March Madness 1992 was when my my dad. My dad and I, but my dad in particular, landed on the the idea that I could skip the the Thursday and Friday of the of the first of the first opening games of the NCAA basketball tournament. We were kind of out playing hoops, and I was lamenting the fact that March Madness is one of the only sporting events that's played during school hours, except for like Olympics when there's time changes and stuff. And so he was like, "Huh, you know what? You you've de- you know you've devoted yourself to this game. You love it." You know, you've learned so much from it. I think you will learn. I think you can learn value in being able to to not go to school as well. And so for for the seven years after he first said that, I always stayed home from school those first two days. And we spent those days together watching the games. And and again, it was one of those things where, yes, of course, I I loved watching the games and I love not going to school, but he also introduced with it. And I don't know that he was purposely doing this, but he introduced the idea of choice and the ramifications of your choice. Uh, Because from then on, he gave me more power. And, you know, if I was, if I wanted to um, go to school a little bit late one day and, 
And I, all of a sudden I felt like I had to use that judiciously. So, and, and wrapped up in March Madness too, for me was because I, when I got older and I was working at ESPN, he would want to watch the games with me. You know, I'm sure as a dad, he thought maybe when my kid gets older, they'll prioritize me and we'll, wa- we'll always watch the games together. And man, I just, for some reason, I just never made, made time once I got older. So it, it, there was a lot wrapped up in that March Madness. And, and, and every time there's every time every year at the NCAA tournament, it's it's definitely a bittersweet time of year for me because I have so many nostalgic memories and then so many failures where I feel like I could have done better. Hmm. So you grew up in Schenectady, but you decided to play your college ball at the University of Colorado, which was obviously a long ways away from home. In retrospect, did you start to feel a shift with your relationship with your dad when you made that decision to go to school so far away? Yeah, that was that was the first fork in the road or breaking breaking off point of our relationship. And I think you know the specifics of it for my relationship with my dad was that we had played this game together. We had spent a couple hours together every day for you know seven straight years, and. I think my dad assumed because he had moved back close to his family, his family, they were all in the same area. I think he had assumed that I would go to school somewhere within like a driving radius, somewhere within like four or five hours from, from Schenectady. And I, I think I blindsided him a little bit by going a four and a half hour plane ride and like a 24 hour drive away because he felt excluded from that experience and from the next four years of being able to kind of live vicariously while I played college basketball. And we, we never really talked openly about it until years and years and years later. Um, and, and that was, that was the first shift for us. Cause I think he felt like it was a selfish de- de- decision by me. And I think he all, he in the end came around to that as a parent, you know, he had to give me freedom and that it was ultimately always my decision. And he certainly knew that, but he just felt hurt by it, which as I got older, I could understand when I was 17, it was, you know, getting a, a chance to go to Boulder, Colorado and, and play at what then was a top 10 program. It was just too alluring for me. But I think that that was the specifics of the first kind of fork in the road in that relationship with my dad. But I think a lot of people can relate as you're as you get a little bit older, a teenager, and you start to make these decisions that they're, they're not always what your parent would have hoped that you make. And, and unless you have a really open relationship and talking to you, that's through that stuff, it can create, it can create little rifts that don't always heal properly. And something else that you readily admit in this book that may have also hurt him along the way was a couple years into college, you came out as gay, but you only told your mom, leaving her to pass the news along to your dad. Why did you not tell your dad in that moment? There were, there's so many reasons. I think, I think the big one, the, the main one was just, I had very little experience being vulnerable about really important things with my dad. Hmm. We, we spent so much time together and we played together and we laughed together and we would listen to music on the car rides and we would talk about hoops and sports. But I just, we hadn't gone into like the heart of really deep things. And so there was, there was a vulnerability there that I would have, that was probably the first opportunity to include him in, in a vulnerable conversation. And I sidestepped it. Um, and there was more, there was more around it in terms of 
at that time, there was a lot of, and I think it still exists, but there was a lot of discussion in the women's sports world about, you know, because this is first first real generation after Title IX where women's sports was kind of cool in high school, that, oh, sports would, like, make your daughter gay. If she hadn't played sports, she wouldn't be gay. And that was actually a big thing that people would say back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And that part of me was... I, I was really terrified that if I told him, he might, he might, he might say or think, well, I guess I shouldn't let you play basketball. And I think that was a big factor for me too, just not wanting to even see or intimate like that, those inner workings of his mind that maybe he would consider that they would just crush me. So there was so many factors, but I think those were a couple of the big ones. And I, uh, by by the end, we had we had we had circled back around, and we were in a great place about that. And he was he was so close with, with my wife, but it took us a very long time, and I never really could figure out if he what he was upset about, like my lack of trust in him, or or that I was gay. It, it was really hard for a number of years to know where the disconnect was coming. Hmm. We're going to fast forward to the diagnosis of ALS, but prior to that, I wanted to ask you one question about your time at ESPN. Most of this book does not focus on your time at ESPN, nor should it, but you wrote something very interesting about your time there that I'd like you to expand on, if you don't mind. You wrote, quote, working at ESPN molded me. I had morphed from a sophisticated organism capable of living across environments to one adapted solely for advancing in the ESPN ecosystem. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Well, like a lot of big companies, especially companies that have campuses where like now I'm thinking like an Apple, an ESPN, um, a Google, where there's a cafeteria and there's it's almost like it's its own little like I say, it's its own little ecosystem. That's like the physical representation of, of what I mean by that was that a lot of people you know, in media would think, oh, you got a job at ESPN. Like you don't need to network anymore. You got the job. You network to get the job. But at ESPN, that was where your networking began because mm-hmm. there you might be a writer and you'd think, okay, well, if they want to have me on for a TV appearance, they'll just reach out to me. But it, it didn't necessarily work like that. You'd have to, next time you were up at the campus, you'd you'd have to reach out to the person who was the producer on a show and you'd offer to get him a coffee and talk about, you know, how they booked the show so that they think of you the next time. And so it, it ended up being this place where you worked and this isn't all bad, but it wasn't great for my personality where you were kind of always in strategizing mode. And that that's not always healthy. Sometimes you just want the job that you can show up to and, you're getting the best out of you and they're, you know, and it's quid pro quo versus feeling like you could always be doing more. And that's kind of how ESPN works is you can always be doing more. You can always be networking. You can always be expanding into podcasts and docs. And, and that's a way of thinking and, and a way of being that is a very ESPN way to be. And so that's what I, that's what I meant. And that's kind of, that's where I kind of saw myself was everything I thought my, my mind was monopolized by, the dynamics of ESPN, both interpersonal, organizational, all of that. 
in the summer of 2016, your dad had neck surgery to correct some weakness in his left hand, but it turned out that the issue was not a disc problem, but a symptom of the onset of ALS. Your mom and dad called you in September of that year to let you know that he had a disease that, as he put it, was in the ALS family. How did that phone call impact you both professionally and personally, Kate? It was, it was, it, it sounds like a trope, but, you know, it's like, it's a moment you'll never forget, or, you know, it's a turning point in your life. And it's not as crystal clear as that, where everything shifts in an instant, because as I write in the book, you, you still, it still takes a long time to execute on changes in your life, even though they've been put into motion in your mind or emotionally by a phone call. And so when, when, when I got that call, because surprisingly enough, I think I, we were all just willing to believe, even though the next surgery wasn't really fixing my dad's problem, you just, you can't help but assume that, well, if they did this next surgery in our, you know, our healthcare system, like that must be the problem. They wouldn't have done it if it wasn't going to fix it. And so his follow-up appointment where they, they were like, well, it's actually not it's not stopping this progression of the atrophying of your arm. And the only other explanation is ALS or something in the ALS family. I mean, I, I, I knew what ALS was because one of my dad's teammates had had it when I was a kid. And if you're in the sports world, it's more predominant in former athletes, the diagnosis. And so, you know, you had Steve Gleason, the former New Orleans Saints. So, mm-hmm. like those three letters were terrifying to me. It wasn't. There wasn't confusion over. Oh, what's that? It was an instant visual of a locked-in syndrome. And so, I, I remember I was going to meet my wife in New York, New York City, and I had gotten the call on the way home from from Connecticut, and I was just completely upside down. I had, I we were meeting someone. I had to cancel it. I had that kind of nervous energy where you 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 can't sleep and you're terrified for a, a long time for something like a couple, couple weeks before you kind of your body absorbs what it means and the impact and what the future might be. And yeah. And, and the future was even more challenging and different and beautiful than I ever could have imagined that day. If I'd known what the future really looked like, I probably would have even been more, more scared and, and nervous and, and terrified because it's different even than you can even imagine when, when you get to the, the inside of what that disease looks like in a family. And two years later, the disease had progressed to a point that you decided to quit ESPN to help your dad. How did quitting ESPN in late 2018 to help your dad out also force you to address some issues that you were internalizing? I mean, leaving ESPN changed everything because it, before, as I, you know, you, it was a good intro question about ESPN a couple minutes ago because I, I, tr- I tried to articulate in that answer that even if you weren't on the ESPN campus or doing something specifically for ESPN in a certain day, it monopolized a lot of your emotion and energy and brain capacity. And so before I'd left, even if I was spending time with my dad, I'd probably part of me was still playing the ESPN game and thinking about things I needed to do and removing that from the equation changed everything in terms of my ability to be present and focused on 
the the emotions of what I was going through along with what he was going through along with my mom and my sister and being able to be fully present in all those ways opened up the experience both good and bad and and changed how I you know and it's hard to hold on to but changed how I wanted to see my my own whatever I defined as a successful life it, it was changing all of those things even though our our culture makes it slippery to hold on to those feelings because you get so much messaging that, well, actually, no, it is money and achievement and status. And it's hard to not let those things creep back in. But I, I tried to let go of them. Well, and considering that your dad was as proud of you as he was, that his daughter was ESPN famous, the fact that he agreed with your decision to leave, I think it says a whole lot, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he although we never I would have never said well, dad, you're so sick because he was terrified of anyone acknowledging that. And no one, even my sister left Boston to move her family to Schenectady. No one, we just, we, we fronted a reason for that. That was different than ALS, right? Oh, well, she, she wants this. She wants that. It's a better place to be. Um, because we were just terrified of saying, well, actually we think you're dying. Mm -hmm. And I just, he would have been terrified of hearing that. But I, but of course, he, he was a very smart man. Um, he knew these decisions were being made, even if we tried to spare him the outward, the verbalization of why they were happening. He knew the undercurrent of it. So how did you come to learn that you and your dad sleep in similar positions? <laughs> Such a weird thing to learn. But yeah. Um, yeah, we very soon after I left ESPN, my dad had a, a pulmonary embolism, like a, a very bad one like i forget what it's called a double saddle where it's in both lungs and um it it we sent him to the icu and it really knocked a whole lot out of him because the one one thing with als in addition to your muscles shutting down is that your body just doesn't bounce back to things you know you it there's not a, there's no there's very little ability to heal itself you know whatever energy you use for something it's almost like you're you're never getting it back um, so after that pulmonary embolism, he, his breathing was much worse. So he was on this, uh, BiPAP machine, which is a non-invasive uh, breathing machine. And there's a long way of saying that he was still trying to sleep upstairs in my parents' bed. And my mom was, he couldn't move a lot. And my mom was like having to rearrange him because he, you know, he couldn't use his left arm and his right was really weak. And so, and, and a couple nights in, I think she thought it wasn't going to be as bad as it was. Like, I'll get a little bit of sleep. But he was he was asking to be moved like every 15 minutes. And so I had left ESPN and I, and I told her that I would come home and I would do that for her. Like I would spend some nights and she could go get sleep down the hall in, in my old childhood room. And dad and I would just like watch Netflix and I would help him move into the shapes that he needed to sleep. And so it was, it was a very intimate thing. You know, he would be, he'd be like, okay, you have to fold my right arm here and drape the blanket like this. And I need the pillow under here. And it was just, it was very tiring, but it was really intimate and interesting because I don't think very many of us get an experience like that where you, someone, you get to actually position someone in the way that they're, body craves positioning and after many nights of this I, I started to understand how my dad liked to sleep and then the, the very next night when I was on on the road for for something 
I, I found myself like bending my elbow at the same angle and like resting my, my hand on my cheek the way he had asked me to. And it was a very, it was like a deep kind of deja vu. I don't think we have a, maybe the Dutch have a word for it cause they have words for everything, but we don't really have a word for the feeling that it was. Um, and I told him, you know, the next time I saw him, I was like, do you know that we sleep in the same positions? <laughs> and, and he was like, that doesn't surprise me. We're very much alike. <laughs> and I will, it was a very long few nights, but it like a lot of, uh, of the experience. I, I, I can't imagine having been anywhere else now. No doubt about that. Why does giving yeah. a low five cause you to think <laughs> about your dad? Yeah. Well, he was the master. He was the master of the low five. Um, <laughs> one, because basketball, and that's just the the gesture of camaraderie on the court. But he he just had he had a lot of quirks, and he probably wasn't the only athlete who would bond with little kids over, you know, like a fist bump or a high five. And he just took it to next the next level um, <laughs> where – you know, you'd be anywhere with my dad, grocery store. And it was it was kind of a way of his acknowledging that even not on the court, even when we're running errands, we're on the same team. And even in the house, you'd walk by the couch and he would just like stick out his hand and be like low five. So that's the that was his like many athletes his his signature move. And it was it was what interestingly enough one of the things that i really missed the most when when he lost use of his right arm and hand after his left when i was home i would try to go over and just like give him a fist bump to his hand but it was a very it was a very dad thing to always always ask for a low five and it was it it was a hole actually when when he couldn't do it anymore i really missed that gentle recognition that we were we were in this thing together hmm. your dad emphasized that life's most important metric was not time but attention why well it, that was a you know as we were talking earlier some of these life lessons that i tried to write that that were that had their origin in basketball the origin of that one in basketball was that you know my dad had since he had played professionally he, he understood the way to focus your workouts and that it wasn't about just lingering, lingering around a gym at all hours. And, and you, you'd, you, I would see people, I would see people do that. Or like friends of mine would just be in the high school gym for like four hours, but mostly just chatting and walking around and going to the vending machine and then coming and taking a couple shots. And I started to say to him, this was the origin of that life lesson. I was like, well, my friends are sometimes at the gym for hours. And he's like, but what are they doing during those hours? He's like, we come here. We know what we're doing. You know, we're here for an hour, 75 minutes. We do exactly what we want to do because we're focused on what we want to do and why we're there. And that's what matters. And he would apply that in most situations better than I think most people did, whether it was, you know, going and he didn't get to do this that much because he got sick quickly. But like if he was at my nephew's game, he, he wasn't he wasn't like secretly reading the news or on Twitter. He was actually watching the game. And I, I, I just think it's a very simple reminder of, you know, showing up to a place is not the same as putting your phone away and wanting to connect. And I think we can all kind of we can all use that reminder these days, not just don't be on your phone, but maybe don't even have your phone out because it just reminds people that 
there there could be a disconnect. And that was something he was really good at. Yeah, 100% on the phones. So you got to pour your heart out to your dad in South Carolina the night before your wedding to Catherine. What did you get to say to him in that moment? <laughs> I tried to say I tried to say all the things that all the things that over the years had piled up about mistakes I'd made. You know, emails you'd sent that you can never take back. Miss, you know, the the miscues, the the wrong decisions and 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 I think it's important to note that I although I got to have this one big conversation with him, it only happened and it only existed because I had spent the year before that, like bought with him and by him and and building up to the moment. And I think that's what allowed him to really stay present and not get defensive or not not want to shut me down. So I just I just told him that I had the best that he was the best dad. And then I didn't that I that I could look back now and realize all the ways in which he had showed up for me that shown up for me that you take for granted as you're a kid. And then also to be a girl playing sports and not even know until I was at ESPN that people grow up and they don't value girls sports. I didn't even know because my dad put me next to him and said, you're, you're an equal. And, and, and I, and I, and I tried to say all those things about how beautiful that was that he made that time for me and liked me so much. And, and then of course, you know, apologizing for the stupid shit I'd said along the way that I could never take back, but that I never really, I didn't, not that I didn't mean it, but that it's not true in the long run and that it doesn't change how I feel about him. And I, and that, of course, I'll never forget that day. And just the, the dissolving of the, of the, the hard matter. I, I don't know if you can dissolve hard matter, Trey, but <laughs> the, the thawing of the, of the, of the ice that had built up around certain topics, it just melted. And I'm so grateful. I mean, it's it, so many people want to have conversations like that that don't get to because of one, maybe not even their own failings, just time gets taken from them. There's some, something happens suddenly or any number of reasons. And, and I'll, I'll feel forever grateful for a lot of things. But one of them is that I got to do that. I got to have the conversation that we all have that person in, in our lives that we want to have it with. Yeah, it's hard not to let things build up. But- over time. And when they build up, they continue to fester and they become worse. But the immediate release, when you actually finally get the guts to have that conversation, you wonder why we don't try and go that route more often with those that we care about the most, as you just said. Yeah. It's really interesting, Trey, because I, I think the times I've had those moments, a lot with my dad and some with my mom, even after my dad died, just you know, a lot of the things I mistakes I had made with my dad, like they they were also impacting my mom. And so there were things to reconcile there. But the amount of emotional like the way your body responds in those moments, it's it's a, it's a physical feeling when you've said something that you've been meaning to say sometimes for decades. All it was was words and your body responds in this like really almost overpowering way and it just it just reinforces the notion of like how important these things are when they're manifesting with like physical reactions in your body at least that's how it is for me 
Yeah, I feel very similarly about that. Lesson number eight is let me be your flunky. As the father of a six and four year old, (laughs) this one really resonates with me. Why is it so important to you? So the let me be your flunky was my specifically every time I competed in basketball and my sister was a runner. And so she, she was running cross country or track. He would carry, it was a very, it was a thing he took a lot of pride in. He would carry our bags for the rest, you know, to the car or, you know, if it was at a meet, he'd make sure he took care of it. And it was, he would always say, Hey, give me your bag. And I'd be like, no, I got it. He'd be like, let me be your flunky. (laughs) And then he would carry our bags around like the tournament or whatever it was. But it was more than that because it was almost like the bag, symbolized the role he wanted to play a supportive role he didn't he didn't need to be the coach he didn't need to be the expert he didn't need it wasn't about his own ego and that was the it was and I and this is one I think he consciously understood it was his physical representation of this is not about me this is not about my ego and he exhibited that behavior in so many parts of our of our sports careers because I think too many parents too many parents think they're helping their kid, but they're re- it's they're really stroking their own ego. And if your kid is enthusiastic about something, all they want is more enthusiasm from you. They don't want, especially as you're just falling in love with something. If if you're falling in love with something and someone's saying, "God, you're so fun and you're so good, just keep at it," that doesn't mean that they don't. That doesn't mean that you, they can't have criticism at some point. But as they're burgeoning this thing. That's all that's the, that's all he thought his job was, was you're 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 just you're trying so hard. And it's so great that you care about this thing. And let me carry your bag. And I didn't realize that that wasn't the standard way of operating in sports until you get older. And then you see other parents like reacting to your teammate, like frustrated that they turn the ball over and you're like, oh, okay, so this isn't the default behavior. This is actually something I should be thankful for. And I became very, very thankful for it the the older I got. So the last lesson that your dad imparted on you and your family, and I don't think this was officially listed as a lesson, but was uh, part Mm -hmm. of your description of his final day or days, was to keep on doing the things you love with the people you love. I absolutely love that. I'm a huge believer in that. And my question, I guess, for you, Kate, and maybe it doesn't really relate to that necessarily, but what is it that you still cherish so much about your dad more than a year after he passed away? Mm. I I think one thing I've found to be true is that now that he's gone, I embrace so much more the parts of myself that are that are like him that I think before if I if I you know because you kind of know you kind of know deep down the ways in which you behave like someone and when he was still alive especially before he was sick I would become very annoyed with him easily and and frustrated maybe at times when I was kind of doing those same things and now that's completely shifted and I know there are things that I do that are like him. I mean, this is a very, this is a very specific example, but he always put himself into songs like a lot of people do, I think. And, and I do it now more than ever. I mean, I've always done it because once a a parent does something, I think you can't help but like take that, take that uh, quirk on. But 
now I'll find myself in the shower like he used to be, just like singing my favorite song and just inserting myself into the lyrics. And now it just makes me, now it just makes me happy. Or, or happy is the wrong word, like joy, but in that like nostalgic joy kind of way. And there's a, a dozen examples like that, just ways when like I kind of give him a little nod because I think he's introduced ways to just enjoy small parts of of life and to to have him who he was live on in the ways in which I move through the world and kind of trying to acknowledge those when I see them in myself in myself, because I think that's, as my mom said in the forward, like that's how I can keep him alive is seeing the ways he impacted me and just honoring them. Beautifully put last question, writing this book started with receiving the blessing from your mom to actually write the book. What do you love about your mom? Oh, you know, it's so funny because the things I love about my mom are, are sometimes the 180 from my dad because my mom and I are so similar in in the, the exact opposite ways that my dad and I are similar. And like, I love travel. I love a great philosophical conversation. My dad was more like, what's the news headline? Let's talk about sports. Let's go do this thing. Let's." And my mom would rather like dig into the, the the theories of why we do things and deconstructing the world. And I'm thankful to her one that she showed up for my dad in such a way that kept him here for as long as possible with, with us, even though this, you know, the disease is just such a, such a heavy burden to carry for a family. And she carried that for our family uh, in such a big way. And then I'm also just thankful for who she is because she's just become She's become, you know, other than my wife, my, my best friend. And uh, I think when you reach a place where you can say that about a parent when you're older, it's never healthy if you're young. But once you're older, that's a beautiful place to be. Well, Kate, thank you so much for this book. It's not often I read a book and I am not only weeping at parts of the book, which I certainly was at the end of this book, but but trying to stifle my crying enough that I don't wake up my wife sleeping right next to me. But uh, that, that was happening last night. So I really appreciate you pouring your heart onto uh, these pages of All the Colors Came Out. And thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for thanks for reading the book so closely and for all the uh, the thoughtful questions. I appreciate it. Join me next time when I speak with filmmaker Garrett Price on his new documentary, Woodstock 99 peace, love, and rage. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and subscribe for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.